I'm Sydney. I'm Bonnie. And this is Introduced from Wisconsin Sea Grant. There's this legend that takes place near Peshtigo, Wisconsin, at the mouth of the Peshtigo River and Lake Michigan. It's 1934, so during the Great Depression, and there's this family of limited means living in this Jack Lake home. And on Sunday, the mother wants to get an early start on Monday's laundry. So she sends two of her sons up to the mouth of the Peshtigo River with wash tubs to get some water. And the boys lean into the, the river and they fill up the basins and they pull them up and they see a lot of little silvery fish in the tub. And they're, they're really amazed. Um, so they went back to the house and they got all these other containers and they brought them back and they filled each of them up with these fish. And the next day they went to the market and they sold the fish and they got money to pay off debt and buy food and clothes. It's a miracle. Yeah. It was the depression and suddenly food was swimming around your ankles. So these little fish were rainbow smelt. They're native to the Atlantic Ocean, but they're able to survive for their whole life in, in fresh water. They are kind of commonly used as bait or food for the fish that we like to raise. And so that's why they were stocked in Crystal Lake in Benzie County in Michigan in like the early 1900s. And um, Crystal Lake is really, really close to Lake Michigan. It's like basically right on the lake. And so you can probably uh, imagine too close. <laughs> you can probably imagine what happens. The rainbow smelt escaped in the 1920s. They made it into Lake Michigan. And soon after, people all over the Great Lakes must have experienced exactly what this Peshtigo family did with these fish. Mysterious and miraculous fish. By the 1930s, these smelt had started reproducing in Lake Michigan and spreading. They reached the shores of Wisconsin, all the way down to Racine and also into Indiana. And they also went north into Lake Superior and Lake Huron all over. Jared Myers researched smelt for graduate work. And now he is a fish biologist for the US Fish and Wildlife Service in Ashland, Wisconsin. If you've seen smelt, they look like little baby barracudas. And it's, I think we're all happy that they're small because if you had big smelt in Lake Superior, probably, I don't know if any, many people would want to go swimming. They, while they're certainly not um, scary to, you know, large fish like lake trout, they serve as prey for them. They do have an impact on small fish within the environment. And Every fish has to start their life small. So imagine a bunch of fresh baby fish. They're really tiny. And you see this giant school of thousands of minnow barracudas coming at you. You know, almost if you think of it like Pac-Man. You can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> <laughs> so most imp important question first, really. Are they actually rainbow? You can convince yourself that they're beautiful. 
when when you bring them in and and they're they're real silvery and uh they do have a kind of a a rainbow color to them when you know when you see them fresh yeah so smelt were introduced to the great lakes and they they moved around and they were kind of just out there swimming waiting for good and ideal conditions like they would love it if all the predators like lake trout vanished and then that kind of happened the sea lamprey came in the vampire of the great lakes they're this eel-like fish that has a suction cup-like mouth with rows and rows of teeth and they like to suck the blood of the lake trout and the sea lamprey populations explode in the 1940s and so the lake trout were really attacked by this and there was also overfishing of lake trout happening too and so lake trout plummeted and the smelt were there and it was kind of their time to shine smelt populations rose dramatically there was so many smelt in lake michigan and lake superior and lake huron and like we were talking about before this introduced fish came at this opportune time because it was kind of the depression and people responded accordingly to food swimming at their feet communities started what became known as smelting or from the people that I talked to in Ashland, apparently the locals call it schmelting. Schmelting. <laughs> Has a good ring to it. Basically, when the fish come to spawn at the shore every spring, people gather and they net all the smelt. And it's a real cultural event. It brings in people from all over. It kind of all ha goes back to um, smelt's reproductive behavior. So usually throughout the year, smelt live you know, a few hundred feet off the shore swimming around. And in the spring is when they are usually ready to reproduce. And what signals to them to spawn is when the water warms up to a certain temperature. So it's like around 42 to 44 degrees. And that's their signal to come into shore. And so usually in the beginning of April, you'll be in Ashland on Lake Superior and the ice will start to thin as it gets warmer and the ice will start to turn black and kind of recedes from the mouth of certain creeks and then the rest of the bay. And that's usually the signal to the people that smelt will start their run. And the really funny thing about smelt is that they only come in and spawn in the dead of night. That's bizarre. <laughs> and um, scientists think that has to do with predation, like to minimize how many fish are going to eat you and take advantage of this um, spawning. And so the smelt come into shore to lay their eggs and reproduce every night for two weeks once this cycle starts. So when the smelt population really took off, in the Great Lakes, especially on Lake Michigan, there was this smelting boom. And there is these stories of what these towns did. Um, there was festivals and parades centered on smelt in the 1930s in like the coastal towns of Lake Michigan. Like towns like Oconto and Marinette attracted 20 to 30,000 visitors every year. And there was dances and banquets and fireworks at 
these smelt fests and they even crowned a smelt king and queen apparently <laughs> it's homecoming it's the homecoming of the smelt <laughs> yeah basically and they also had this really bizarre tradition actually let me show you a picture and you can describe what's happening here and I think the photo is from Marinette, Wisconsin. So kind of close to Peshtigo. Mm -hmm. Smelt ground zero. Oh. That's really, really um, different. <laughs> okay, so what, I'm, what I think I'm seeing is two grown men in their boxers are... This is a black and white photo. They're like attacking each other in this ring, and the ring is just full of smelt, I guess. Is this smelt? It is, yeah. Why are they doing that? And then there's this crowd of people. <laughs> I think, like, what's happening is weird, but then, like, what makes this picture even stranger is, like, this crowd of smiling onlookers acting like what is happening in this ring is completely, completely normal. <laughs> I know. I love the guys in the back. They, they all have their little, like, 1940s hats on. Mm -hmm. 1939, you were really close. 39, yeah. yeah. They're all like gleefully looking at the, this wrestling ring with these men. Um, this is a tradition called smelt wrestling. And it's a ring, like a boxing ring covered in two tons of smelt. And apparently the wrestlers would fight to see who could stuff the most smelt in his opponent's trunks. <laughs> so like even more intense than regular wrestling. <laughs> So you can tell that there was a lot of smelt in the lake and commercial fishing also took advantage of this. And there were tens of millions of pounds of smelt harvested in the 40s and 50s. Here's Jared talking about Lake Superior. Through the 60s and 70s, there were a ton of smelt. As lake trout dove down because of sea lamprey, it created a situation where smelt were able to take off folks will tell stories of when you know people would come up here with school buses that were that had cattle tanks inside of them and they would sane up smelt and put and then take those fish back and spread them as fertilizer so there's just stupid amounts of smelt in the lake you know back at that time so admittedly now we don't have as many smelt as before but smelting is still a tradition like in ashland in ashland bait shops and the chamber of commerce will start getting these calls in the winter and people are always asking like when are the smelt going to be here when is smelting season going to start I wanted to learn more about Ashland smelting, and so I called Angler's All, which is a bait shop that sits right on Lake Superior in Ashland. And Angler's All is owned by Carolyn Schwartz, and she's worked there since the 80s. And Angler's All is directly on Lake Superior, and looking out her window, Carolyn can see Washburn and Houghton Point and the hills of Bayfield. What are the conditions on the lake today? They are crisp, cold. We have a west wind starting to blow a little bit. There's a little bit of chop on the water. The lighthouse is all lit up by the sun. And it's a gorgeous day on Lake Superior. 
Carolyn had to watch the shop. So we had to talk at a time when she didn't think many people would stop by. So we chatted at 6 a.m. It looks like an old time bait shop. It's not fancy. I have a lot of pictures of the past that have been given to us over the years. Um, I have some mounted fish on the wall and animals. And I have fur hats and hanging furs. So I'm a little bit old school. People call Carolyn with a lot of questions. Oh, geez, we'll start getting phone calls in February as to well, when do you think that we should make plans to come up there? And the Chamber of Commerce gets these same phone calls. What time are they going to run? What day, or, what day should I take off of work to go smelting? You have to ask the smelt. Carolyn said, you never know when the ice is going to thaw and when the water is going to warm up to that 42 to 44 degrees. And the average ice out is April 22nd. But Carolyn has seen it happen in May and also as early as in March. I tell them that my crystal ball is broken. And some people take that well and other people think it's offensive. So. <laughs> Carolyn isn't an, a native of Ashland. She moved there with her husband in the 80s. So she was new to Lake Superior culture. And at first she thought ice fishing and also smelting were a little bit odd, but they quickly became part of her life. Um, we started smelting when we got here. I mean, smelting had always been a big part of uh, the history of this area and everybody went smelting. We were lucky enough to have a beach next door to us and it was the best smelting beach on the bay. And our whole neighborhood, it was kind of a whole neighborhood thing. They would come down, the kids would all come down in the neighborhood. They'd carry smelt buckets for us. We'd have campfires and cookout. And we would have to stay up all night sometimes and be here all day. So it's a tough time of year, too, physically. So anglers all would sell smelt for people who might not want to go smelting themselves, but still want, still want some. And they also sold smelt for bait. And now Carolyn hasn't gone smelting for a few years because she says she's too old, but the bait shop's role is still to answer questions, really tell people where the smelt are, sell smelting nets, package and sell smelt for people, and basically be on her role is to be on call throughout the night. Um, wait, so she would sell them as bait. You can't do that anymore, right? That's like not allowed. <laughs> right. You can't sell live smelt, but you can buy and sell frozen smelt. So that's what Carolyn does. Okay. Um, so how do you smelt? Yeah, good question. So, so groups of people gather at beaches that smelt are known to come into. And when the smelt are first coming to spawn, you really don't know when they're going to show up. Like it could be 7 p.m. It could be midnight. It could be all the way till 6 a.m. So like 
with a lot of this is just kind of like waiting and seeing what the smelt will do. And so a lot of smelting I've heard is like having bonfires, drinking beer with friends, you know, and like staying up late into the night because you usually don't get done until like 2 a.m. or something. So, you know, barbecuing and just having like a really social time on the beach at night. Um, but like Wisconsin, typical spring, like the weather is not reliable. And so you could be smelting in the snow where your gear could freeze at night or it could be 70 degrees like you really, it just depends on the year. And so there are two main methods that people use for smelting, seining and dip netting. And um, I didn't really know what seining was. So there's a little video clip of this. So this is a video from Larry Smith Outdoors that I found. Can you tell what's happening here? I can already see them. You can? They're jumping over by you. So there are well, these men in the water. They're standing in their waders in like knee high water and it's night. Um, ooh, it looks like there's a fire on the shore too. They're they're pulling this net through the water, like right offshore. And they lift it out, it's full of smelt. Oh my gosh. And they're all flopping around in this net and there's so many. Yeah, I think what from that video, what was kind of surprising to me is that the water is kind of muddy. So it's like you literally can't tell there's hundreds of smelt right under their feet until they pull in the net all the way to shore. And then they have to, like, make sure the smelt don't all fall well, out. Right, because they're like kind of large waves coming in, which is an element that I didn't really anticipate. Like I had this image of them in the water, but like not in the water with large waves breaking. <laughs> That's that adds like a lot of intensity. <laughs> Tommy and Michael are out there doing a pull right now. Let's see how many they get. Uh, oh, we, we're on about our, about our fifth pull, and we probably have about <gasps> maybe a quarter of a cooler full. They have a like gigantic cooler, and it's just full of tiny little silver fish. Yeah, so that was seining. It's basically kind of like imagine two people with like a tennis net and the net has weights on the bottom and then floats on the top and then people are at the two ends in waders and they're like slowly bringing the net into shore so and then the the second way that people smell is with dip nets and um check out this a clip from this video from bear solace outdoors of people smelting in in the milwaukee area this is smelting the old-fashioned way, like the old-timers used to do it. We don't go out sanding anymore. We use uh, rigs on the wall here. So um, I'm, I'm seeing these men on a boat, or maybe this is a dock, and it has like um, like a large hoist or pulley-looking thing hanging out over the water, and I bet that there's... Oh, here comes the net. Um, <laughs> it's hard to describe. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really hard to describe. It's like attached at four corners, kind of like a big tablecloth almost. That it's like... Mm. Yeah, they didn't get any smelt though. That's kind of a bummer. I wanted to see. I wanted to see the smelt coming in. Um. Yeah. So, <laughs> dip nets. They're actually standing on a pier, so it requires a pier, and so you're standing on there, and there's kind of a crane arm that extends over the water, and there's this, like, tablecloth slash like upside down umbrella shaped net that you're just lowering and then reeling it back up to see if you get any fish. 
then like once you have your cooler full or however however many smelt you want you can clean them which i heard from a lot of people it takes longer to clean them than it does to catch them because you have to go through all these like kind of minnowish looking fish and like chop the head off and and get rid of the insides and then you can eat them and people eat them like a lot of people just deep fry them or have fish tacos those are some of the some of the recipes i heard and um Another big part of the smelting weeks is that a lot of organizations up there will do smelt fry fundraisers. So like the fire department or the Catholic church or the local veterans organization will hold smelt fries and um, you can go and get your, get your fill. That seems really wholesome. Here's Jared, the fish biologist. You know, I first started smelting when I was a freshman in college and you almost never forget your uh, your first time smelting because the tradition is is the the first smelt you catch you got to bite the head off, and so uh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> That's pretty gory. <laughs> so smelt have really only been in the Great Lakes for about a hundred years or less, but clearly they've become a pretty big tradition for coastal areas. And, you know, back in the day where in Lake Superior, they would like fill up school buses, tank, tanks within school buses full of smelt. Now you can get a five gallon bucket, but you're probably not going to get so much more than that based on the conditions that year. We should mention that if you're planning to go smelting on Lake Superior, check if there's a consumption advisory. In January 2021, the DNR found high levels of PFOS in smelt. That's a group of chemicals that have negative health consequences. The Department of Health Services recommends eating Lake Superior rainbow smelt only once a month, so keep that in mind. But smelting still brings thousands of people to Ashland. Like, you can go through town on an April night and see people smelting at every public beach along the main road. And you can see campfires in the night all around the bay. I talked to Sarah Hudson. She's the Parks and Rec director for Ashland. And she actually said, Parks and Rec, it's a, it's a lot like the show. And her job is to kind of deal with just these hordes of people that come in for um, smelting season. And so, and you know, she has to deal with the littering. She has to deal with parking violations and, and camping problems. And so smelting season can be kind of overwhelming for her. Like when, they got a nice new pier at a popular smelting beach. We have a new pier at Bayview Pier, and you said you can't attach anything to the pier to smelt. And you would have thought I canceled Christmas. They're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, it's a new pier. I can't have you like drilling into my brand new pier. They're like, well, what we've always done that. And I was like, but that was illegal. But no one cared because it was a 30 year old pier. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So. Up north, summer and fall are pretty touristy, lots of people traveling. Um, and then you have deer season in November, right? Deer mm -hmm. season? Yep. And then in winter, there's still quite a few people coming in for snowmobiling, ice fishing, cross-country skiing, those types of things. Then you hit March, April, and May, and Sarah was calling these months the shoulder season because there's really no tourism at all. And a lot of businesses will even close down for this period. The smelt run around March or April kind of punctuates this. It's kind of one of those signs that 
spring in the Northwoods is going to be here. Soon the ice will be out and summer does come. Temperatures will get above 40. We kind of all look forward to it because winter, winters are long up here. There once was a resident of Wisconsin who was unable to locate a trash bin. The unwanted items found their way to the ground and from there the impending disasters compound. The spring snowmelt and summer rains washed the refuse down storm drains across the land and other locations unplanned. The wastewater treatment plant did its best to filter and settle, but microplastic waste was just too small to wrestle. Within the existing technology and cost parameters constraining the work of pollution control managers. Other problems ensued as the organisms inadvertently ingested the waste that humanity manufactures with unabating haste. Want to learn more about the impacts of waste on our waters? The Trash Trunk Lessons and Tools will allow you to consider and measure how to rethink, refuse, reduce, refurbish, repair, repurpose, recycle, and treasure the resources we steward on behalf of one another. If you're among the many who are looking for online learning materials for use at home, check out the Trash Trunk. Its free lessons are great for learners anywhere from levels kindergarten through adult. Click on the link in the description and visit the Wisconsin Sea Grant website for more details. Despite them being the sign of spring, despite them being really adored by a lot of people, smelt weren't always in the Great Lakes. I asked Sarah about this. Remember, she's the Parks and Rec Director for Ashland. Do you think people who come smelting realize or know about smelt being an invasive species? No. <laughs> I do not. I honestly don't think people realize that they are a non-native species. I think they think they've always been there. Sarah said sometimes these are hard conversations to have because people will kind of argue with her and she's like, well, just Google it. Like it's, it's on Google. So I wanted to know more about smelt out in the lake, you know? Like, what happened to the lake when smelt were introduced? Here's Jared. So smelt were a big part of my graduate work and trying to understand the influence of smelt on recruitment of cisco or lake herring. So recruitment being like, how many young fish make it into adulthood? Yeah, basically how well their reproduction is going. So I was just trying to confirm that like Cisco and Lake Herring are the same, the same fish. And um, so I wanted to know what like the common names for Cisco are. And so I Googled common names for Cisco. Google says <laughs> common first names for Cisco, James, John, William, George, George Charles, Robert, Charles, Robert. <laughs> What's this guy? What is this talking about? I think it means like if Cisco was your last name, what what is um what might your first name be? John? John? <laughs> yeah, so um Jared's research focused on the concern that smelt could have negative impacts on these native species. So 
kind of looking at Lake Superior as a case study here. A big question is, what do smelt eat? And it turns out smelt eat baby or really young walleye, whitefish, and cisco, aka lake herring. Imagine the Pac-Man that we talked about before, like going after these baby native fish. So smelt eat cisco, and we like cisco because they are good hardy prey to keep the food web in balance. They've been here a really long time in the Great Lakes, and so the smelt eating their babies, that can't be good for them. Cisco have been declining in the Great Lakes to the point where there's been almost like dire levels of Cisco before, at least in Lake Superior. And it kind of seems like when smelt have a bad year, the Cisco's recover or the Cisco's do better. Well, I guess smelt go up, then the cisco will go down, and if there's no smelt, the cisco can come back up. So, like a smelt cisco seesaw. Yeah. Okay. So, for example, take Lake Superior in the 70s. So, on one side of the seesaw, we have smelt at the top. Like, smelt are doing quite well. And then at the bottom of the seesaw, on the other side, there are really dire levels of cisco, aka herring. And then in the 80s, the smelt start to decline. Smelt kind of came down through the 80s. Um, and that is what some people believe allowed Cisco to begin to recover in Lake Superior. The 1984 year class of Cisco is famous because folks almost thought herring were gone until the 84-year class kind of came out of nowhere, and then poof, um, herring were back in Lake Superior. And that seems like kind of anecdotal evidence, but Jared's research confirms it. While smelt don't likely cause a complete crash of, of a species, or, or like, like Cisco, they can certainly dampen the, the success of a given year class. So whereas you might have expected a, a really good year class of, of Cisco given certain environmental conditions, if you have a lot of smelt present and surrounding those baby young of year Cisco, you're going to lose some of that potential. We see year classes of, of Cisco that, that just never take off like we, like we might expect. And there's a whole host of, of other uh, things that can that can influence your class strength. So in no way am I trying to say it's just smelt. Okay. What are some of the other things that can affect a year class of Cisco? So your question is something that has puzzled fishery scientists since the beginning of fishery science. Um, it's it's the it, it's the holy grail of fishery sciences to understand um, what causes um, good years for fish and, and more often than not bad years for fish. When you're looking at a lake as big as Lake Superior, there are so many factors that would go into 
the populations of all kinds of different animals, like temperature and wind speed. Like if the wind brings vulnerable baby fish into an arena that allows them to grow really fast, then they'll be able to like escape predators, but maybe the wind doesn't blow that way. And Jared said that fish have so many offspring, like each one has hundreds of thousands. And so trying to figure out what makes the few that survive good at surviving is just really, really hard and something that scientists are still working on. And smelt are just part of this equation in Lake Superior because all these new aquatic invasive species have come in and they've changed the lakes. They're still changing the lakes. And, you know, 10 years ago, the lakes look different than now and they'll look different in 10 years too. That's what makes it hard. So there's another element to this story. We've covered what smelt are eating, but what is eating the smelt? So since smelt have become established in Lake Superior, they've actually become a very important part of the food web as it is now. When smelt came in and Cisco levels went down, the lake trout, which usually would have eaten a lot of Cisco, had to turn to something else to eat. So they turned to eating smelt. Smelt are so abundant close to shore and they become a really important part of the lake trout diet. My understanding of smelt is that they're actually kind of dumb. Um, they sit somewhat motionless in the water column. And so it's really easy for lake trout to encounter and, and, and eat a lot of smelt. And so I always kind of say like, you know, if you're a lake trout and you're swimming around and you can eat a herring, that's like eating one big juicy cheeseburger. It's a healthy cheeseburger. It's good for you. Um, but if you're going around and eating smelt, it's almost like you're going around and eating fingernails. Like maybe there's some substance to it, but it's not that good for you. And so it's just like another aspect of, of, of smelt that's like, eh, they serve a role. They're just not that great. Smelt are important to the Lake Superior food web in that lake trout and other predators might struggle without them at this point. Okay. And meanwhile, there's this whole thing that's happened in these communities on the Great Lakes where people get so, so hyped about these non-native fish. And so they've become like both very important to people, but also impacting people in ways that they might not even realize, like taking out other fish that they care about, like walleye. Yeah, walleye, cisco, herring, etc. That's a really good way to put it. So that's Lake Superior. Now imagine taking this whole cycle and squeezing it down to the size of an inland lake, like a, a popular fishing lake. What effects do smelt have in any of Wisconsin's thousands of inland lakes? It turns out that smelt cause very intense effects. Oh, I know about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell, tell me what you know about this, because we reported about this last season with um, the story about the super smelt. Yeah, so if you'll recall from season one, episode six, <laughs> um, the tale of the super smelt, <laughs> um, 
there have been a bunch of smelt introductions on small inland lakes across northern Wisconsin, kind of similar to how smelt were introduced to the Midwest in the beginning. Um, but once those smelt are there, they are so disruptive to the food webs in those lakes and cause um, fish like walleye and perch. They cause they cause populations of those fish to really just crash and it's very hard to bring them back and it's even harder to get the smelt out of the system once they're there and um, people have gone to absolutely wild measures to take the smelt out of these systems. For sure. Um, smelt are kind of doing what they're doing in Lake Superior in the inland lakes. They're eating the the larval fish of the cisco and the walleye and the whitefish and the, the lake trout even. Um, in episode six, we were talking about how they tried to change the temperature of a whole lake just to try to get it so that the smelt couldn't survive, and the smelt always end up duping people. In order to to not introduce smelt, though, into other lakes, there's a few things you can do. So it goes back to don't transport smelt or use them as live, live bait. Like, always drain your live wells, your bilge water and your transom well. <laughs> I have no idea what these things are. <laughs> um, always drain your boat before leaving water. And if you have unused bait fish, like just don't dump them into, into any lakes. It is not worth it. We're going to take a break, but after we come back, what happened to smelt wrestling? Teach Me About the Great Lakes is a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. And, uh, you know, it serves a really important purpose within my job because I do need to learn a lot about the Great Lakes. But I think what's really great is that also the audience can learn at the same time. And so it's really become like a one-stop shop for everything you could want to learn about the Great Lakes. You know, things from biology to ecology to geology, natural history, political history, uh, the arts, weather, you know, anything that you, you might want. We probably have an episode about, or if we don't, we'll probably have one soon. And then, you know, because this is every two weeks, we might have another one shortly thereafter. Maybe even a two-parter. I don't know. And it's a friendly format, which is good. But I think what's key to our success is that we're unafraid to ask the important and difficult questions. Questions like, so if you could have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? I would definitely have a sandwich. I would go with the sandwich. I think I'd have to go with a donut. I caught up with Titus Seilheimer, the outreach specialist for Wisconsin Sea Grant, and he's based in Manitowoc. It's on the Lake Michigan side of Wisconsin. And I kind of wanted to know what the smelt situation was up there. It's kind of this like vestiges of a tradition where it's like you can still go to restaurants to get smelt, but the smelt are being imported from other lakes. Locally here at Manitowoc, you know, I can, I know there's restaurants in town that I can go and order smelt, uh, smelt dinner. Um, and that 20 or 30 years ago would have been coming, you know, harvested right off the shore here uh, from two rivers. Uh, now a lot of that smelt comes from Lake Erie. Smelt numbers have been down pretty dramatically in Lake Michigan actually recently. And this is also happening for alewife which is another small and invasive fish that serves as prey for trout and salmon, the fish that we really like to catch in Lake Michigan. The ecology of Lake Michigan has changed and that opportunity to commercially harvest smelt has really declined. It's the 
zebra mussels, quagga mussels, changing the food web. It's a, a lot of predators in the lake too. And if you're an alewife, if you're a smelt, uh, you know, it's hard to find food. It's easy to get eaten by other fish. In these towns like Marinette on Wisconsin's Lake Michigan coast, they used to have tons of smelt, like extra smelt for wrestling in. But now if you're lucky, you get half a pail in a season. And when we were just watching those videos of um, seining and dip netting, if you noticed on Lake Superior, they had like full nets and coolers full of smelt. And in Lake Michigan, it was like they had one little smelt in the dip net. And that's kind of what it's like, it seems like. So more people from around Wisconsin, around Lake Michigan are calling up to Ashland to try to go smelting there. So at this point, smelt work still kind of confusing me because technically they're invasive and invasive always sounds like it kind of has this negative connotation, you know, like we should be trying to get the smelt out. Like you shouldn't be partying. You shouldn't be having a party on a beach because you're <laughs> excited to see the species come running up in the day. Right. People love them so much. But, at you know, on the other hand, there's research that pointed that they probably have negative effects on suppressing some of the native fish in Lake Superior um, that we also love. So, um, yeah, I I asked Jared from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service what he thought. Uh, these things are always so complicated. Do you think there should be, or is it, would there be any way to manage smelt? Um, no. I guess I'll put it this way. Do you think we could remove mosquitoes from the state of Wisconsin? <laughs> the answer is probably no. Same for Skelton Lake Superior. They're like mosquitoes. So... You know, it, I guess it just seems like smelt are here and there's really nothing that we humans can do to, in, in either way, you know? Um, any questions about smelt management, like what would happen if all the smelt went away? They're, they're kind of basically just a thought experiment at this point. For Jared, who studied the effects that smelt have on the baby native fish, he views a potential smelt decline kind of as an opportunity to see what would happen. And because what he thinks would happen is that native species like cisco or walleye would just become that much stronger. But it's also like, is this even worth thinking about? Because it's, it's interesting to me, but it's also like, is it worth talking about because if they're really like mosquitoes, there's there's really, there's nothing we can do. Here's Carolyn from Anglers All. Yes, they are invasive, but so are a lot of fish that have been planted over the years. That is the main forage base in this area for the fish to eat. So not only do people eat them, the fish eat them and people in turn eat the fish. 
so it's kind of like a big circle of life there. It's it sound it seems like a pretty small world up in the Ashland area. While I was talking to Jared, he had been kind of hardcore against smelt for like the whole interview. Like he had his biologist hat on and he was like, you know, standing up for native fish and doesn't really see any worth in smelt. But then when I talked to him about my conversation with Carolyn, his position shifted a little bit. Like it was almost like he had his his neighbor, friendly neighbor hat on again. So I know Carolyn quite well. Um, and she she makes up she makes a good point. It's it's a that is a time of year where there's not a whole lot of tourism. And so, you know, folks coming into town, staying in hotels, you know, or, or, or coming through the doors of her bait shop, it's fantastic. You know, it's, and it's making an opportunity that, that they wouldn't, wouldn't have. And so when we're presented with that situation, like have at her, you know, it's just, from a management perspective, you know, we, we only have so many levers as managers to, to do so many things. And a lot of it has, a lot of it is either catch more, catch less, or stock more, or stock less. That's all we got. And neither one of those are gonna happen for smelt. We're, we're never gonna catch enough to really have an effect on them. And no one's ever going to stock smelt. So with the situation we have, knock yourself out. These are really big licks. And, you know, preventing the spread of aquatic invasive species is the only lever that we truly have. Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Wilson and Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at Grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We would love to hear from you. Please send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Play. If you'd like to know more about IDing any of the things we've discussed on the show today, check out our show notes. We'll have more information linked there. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.